on the internet move faster than the truth. And that's in part why there are all these safeguards that Elon Musk is trying to take down on Twitter right now. Um, the lies that were pushed were from bad pieces of information they found. For example, they said that uh, Paul Pelosi was uh, in his underwear. Of course he was, 2.30 in the morning at the time he was attacked. They, that led them to believe this was a lover's quarrel between two different people that knew each other. The reason they believe they knew each other is because the police put out a statement saying that they didn't really know who opened the door. So they, that led them to believe there was a third person in the house. Mm -hmm. So from there, there was this world building on the pro-Trump internet. What could be the opposite of reality here? And the opposite of reality they came up with was these two people were having a lover's quarrel in a house and the police sort of intruded on us. It's fundamentally incorrect. It was pushed by the richest man in the world. And then yesterday it was pushed by Donald Trump Jr who posted a picture of underwear and a hammer and said it's a Halloween costume for Paul Pelosi. If we don't cut this out right now, the, not just the normalization of violence, but the idea that reality can't even exist anymore because it cannot catch up to the lies on the internet. I'm not a scholar on authoritarian history, but yeah. I've, let, I've read Hannah Arendt, I've read all of these people. Mm -hmm. This is how it gets really bad. This is the start of something that gets really, really bad. If you are getting the guardrails off the truth, where it literally cannot catch up to the lies on the internet because of how the pipes work, how the system works, because of the incentives of the richest people in the world, then that's how you lose your democracy. So is that the numbers in these exits do not line up with what we were seeing in the polling data going into this election about what people cared about and the order in which they ranked mm -hmm. it. So we have had a lot of questions throughout this time about new voters, people that hadn't been in there before that were perhaps not getting captured by the polling. So maybe this is a sign that we're going to see a little bit more of that tonight than we expected. We obviously don't know yet. And you know what's missing from this one, two, three, four, five, top five issues? Democracy. Oh, yeah. It's not even in here. It's not to say that it's not an issue for people, but it doesn't not even come issue. close. Well, not I do think that Just got off the phone with House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. He is on the brink of becoming the next Speaker of the House from Bakersfield, California. He outlined to CBS News in a one-on-one -on -one interview what that would mean for the country, said investigations of the Biden administration on COVID, Afghanistan. The Justice Department said he wants to sit down with President Biden, talk about spending cuts in exchange for a debt limit extension. He also called former President Trump an ally and very helpful in any GOP gains made tonight. And he noted he has been huddling in recent days with former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, of course, from 1994 in that Republican wave. Robert Costa with that breaking news and that exclusive interview with the man who could be the next Speaker of the House. I want to bring in our chief political analyst, John Dickerson. What will you be looking for tonight? Well, I'm just going to pick up where Bob yeah. was because um, listen to what his sentence was. 
McCarthy's going to have investigations and then sit down with Biden. Those are two things directly <laughs> at odds with each other, and that's part of the challenge for a McCarthy speakership, if there is one. Also, I don't know what our exit polls are going to show, but I'm pretty sure they're not going to show that Americans wanted investigations. This will be one of the early challenges. How much does a majority investigate? How much does a majority deal with the issues that Americans are burning about prices? Child, uh, education and other things. Wow, tonight is already getting interesting. Yeah. <laughs> wow, and we're just getting started. Gail so King, too. I know you have been talking to voters. People are frustrated. They're very frustrated, and Nora, they're exhausted. I'm glad that our coverage is called America Decides, because this is really happening. America, you are deciding, even as we speak right now, but they're just ready to move on. And to your point, John, I think people are tired of investigations. They're tired of the bickering. They're just exhausted. That said, people said they still have a lot of hope. They still have a lot of hope. We still live in the United States. In the state of Georgia, thanks to Brian Kemp and, and Raffensperger, they changed the state law so that you cannot get a provisional ballot in Georgia before five, before five o'clock. So if you waited in line for two and a half hours, got there, and they said, oh, there's some sort of mistake, you can't get a provisional ballot here. The level of voter suppression is beyond anything that we saw in 2018. So I think it's completely up in the air. There has been youth turnout at levels we haven't expected. Democrats feel confident. Republicans I've spoken to feel confident. But we can't say that whatever happens tonight is a fair and equitable election because there have been too many laws passed by election deniers to keep people from being able to express themselves. And welcome back to Flower Politics Podcast. It's the 9th of November, year of our Lord, 2022. And oh my God, what a horrible night that was. That just, wow. It's like going through it all over again in 2020, going to bed, looking okay, and then it just, the bottom falls out. It's gone. Your intro, you can see, I mean, they were ready for the loss. Ready for the loss. I don't want to be that guy, but I'm going to for a short podcast today. A red mirage or artificial GOP vote lead will likely occur Tuesday. That was all over the place. All over the place. Because they were doing the same things they always do. And I don't understand how we went from this is a real thing from the New York Times election stress that they sent to their viewers because they were so scared they were so scared they they were going to lose the election the only positive i'm going to play it up front is ron DeSantis, and i saw a tweet and i added to it and a bunch of people liked what I said but the reality is you're just going to have to go to certain areas and live from now on because they've got a bulletproof way of winning it's mail-in ballot it's ballot harvesting stop the vote manufacture votes I don't care what you're saying that's what they're doing we never did this till 2020 64 percent counted Carrie Lakes was up by five points. She's not winning. The lady in charge of elections is. But Florida ran like a normal state does. And my God, the demos show that once again, something is fucking fishy. 
you know, Democrats cannot take the Latino vote for granted. It's interesting. You know, I, I'm convinced that there is no Latino vote. There are just Latino voters, and they vote differently depending on their sensitivity, their life experience, even where their parents and grandparents are from. But I've been talking to, you know, Chuck yeah. Todd. I think the story, there's 34.5 million Latino eligible to vote in this election, 15% of the electorate is Latino. That's a massive amount of people. And I think that where it's been, and it's an outlier, no doubt, is Florida. Yeah. The, the impact of Latino voters in Florida, DeSantis winning majority, the Cuban vote, majority of the Puerto Rican vote in that I-4 corridor, 55% uh, of the Puerto Rican vote, 50% of all of the other Latino voters in the state of Florida. Miami-Dade. He's going to outpoll Marco Rubio in his... In okay. Miami-Dade. Yeah. In Miami-Dade. Well, Marco Rubio didn't win his county, right. uh, you know, the last time he, he ran. But I think that, that it's important to recognize the strength of the Latino vote throughout our country. Democrats would love these kind of numbers anywhere, specifically Florida. If Democrats want to learn why they're losing voters to the GOP, they should study the state of Florida. Yes, every group is different. It's not monolithic. But Florida Republicans are doing something right. They're setting up a lot of different uh, locations where they're meeting Hispanic voters where they are. They're on the air in English. They're on the air in Spanish. And any assumptions the Democratic Party has about Latino voters, whether it be about immigration or abortion, they have. We got someone else coming in. Uh, oh, we just got, I'm told we just got Miami Day. This is a big one in Florida. Let's take a look at, okay. This, we got the, yeah. So let's put this in some perspective. Miami-Dade County has two and three quarter million people. In 2016, this was a Democratic county by 30 points. Hillary Clinton won this county by 30 points. Miami-Dade is 70% Hispanic. It began shifting to the, to the Republicans in 2020. Donald Trump only lost it by seven. And look at this. In the mail-in and early vote, which again tends to be more Democratic friendly, Marco Rubio, the Republican, is outright leading in Miami-Dade County by seven points over Val Demings, a Democratic challenger. I mean, what is, what is the lesson you are drawing here in terms of the Hispanic vote? How alarmed should Democrats be? Well, in Florida, it's catastrophic. So obviously we saw great erosion in 20 in the presidential race. And let's remember, Barack Obama won in 2012, basically tied the Cuban vote, got over 70% of the Hispanic vote. So the Obama coalition in Florida is gone. We've got to rebuild it now. The question will be in Arizona, in Nevada, huge Hispanic vote in North Carolina, Virginia. What do we see there? I would be surprised to see anywhere near the erosion we're seeing in Florida. I think this may be contained in Florida, maybe along some of the border in South Texas, where we saw some problems, and in West Texas in 2020. Uh, but this is a massive problem. From Electoral College chessboard, if you're looking ahead to 24, if you basically seed those 29 electoral votes from the very The other major storyline coming out of Florida, because we called it so early, Maria Elena Salinas, I want to bring you in. Uh, I know your home is Miami. You're here in New York, and we're grateful for that tonight. But there's going to be a question in Democratic circles. I mean, have we lost uh, Florida now to the Republicans? I mean, this was very early tonight, and we've seen what it's done the last couple of presidential cycles. They have, David. They've been very slowly losing uh, Florida to the, to, the Democrat, I mean, to the Republicans. And, and when I see those numbers, blue Miami data, as you can see in that map, uh, Miami-Dade is probably the bluest uh, 
county in the state. I mean, I see it every day out my window, the blue ocean there, and it's very blue. <laughs> but this time, it looks like it's going red. And really, it's the Democrats that have themselves to, to blame for this because they really have not fought back. You know that Miami is one of the centers of disinformation, especially among Latino voters. The majority of, of, of residents in Miami-Dade are are Latinos, and they don't fight back. It seems almost as if they have given up on, on Florida. And now a lot of people just consider it not a swing state, but a red state. And for the first time, possibly, the Latino vote will go Republican, because even though we talked a lot about that last uh, election in 2020, Joe Biden still won the Latino vote in Florida, just by a much smaller margin than the election for, for Hillary Clinton. So it looks like it's turning red, and the Latinos really have a lot to do with that. But one thing... Florida, uh, once the nation's premier swing state, I think that's fair to say. Also fair to say the state is now trending Republican. It had gone back and forth in presidential elections since Bill Clinton was president, but former President Trump expanded his lead here from 2016 to 2020 and registered Republicans, this is historic, now outnumber registered Democrats. So what we do? Well, we swung up from Miami to Jacksonville to find out why Florida may no longer swing for Democrats. Miami, Miami, Miami is where we found Enriquetas, a Cuban sandwich and coffee spot still making it in Midtown. Yeah, every morning. Not a stop here every single morning. Justin Kaplan starts the day with un cafecito and two of these croquetas. I didn't vote for him the first time. I won't vote for him again. I still think he's been unfairly vilified. And I think that the national narrative and certainly the narrative outside of the state of Florida is, is absolutely not in line with what's really going on down here. As we moved inside over a plate of bacon and eggs, we learned something else that Florida outsiders may forget. There's a difference between Cuban voters and Latino voters. Cubans tend to, to vote Republican. Diami Marquez is one of a million Cuban Americans around Miami. And when it comes to Ron DeSantis... He's a beast. Why is he a beast? I like the way he does everything. And that includes his decision to send migrants from the south to states up north. I'm an immigrant, but I came legal. I believe in legal immigration. I don't believe in illegal immigration. Our next stop, Pub Americana in the heart of downtown Melbourne. We have our freedoms here. Yeah. You know, a lot more than the other states. He says the economy is a top concern, but a bigger motivator for him is the culture. Well, what's going to push you is the distribution of values. All these other things and ideas that, quite frankly, are coming up or being forced down a lot of people's throats. So we're going to stand up and they're going to get voted down. After tucking into a burger and a craft beer, we heard from two women across the room who sounded like they might lean Democrat, especially on the issue of abortion. Women should have a choice to do what they want. It's not my decision to tell someone else what to do. But Catherine Graham and Tommy Fryer, both registered independents, like what Ron DeSantis is cooking up on just about every other issue. He's just like on it, especially with how he handled COVID. Like, yeah, I feel like that was a big contributing factor to it. I just feel like he's very family oriented. He, you know, cares about the people, doesn't like, you know, doesn't BS around. Our final stop, Jacksonville, a big political surprise in 2020 when the county flipped blue for the first time in more than four decades.
It's where we found tremendous barbecue. Increasing cost of operation. What's going on there? Can I say Biden? You can say <laughs> whatever's on your mind. It wasn't like that when Trump was president. Before you didn't have to think about what you said. Now you really got to think about it before you say it. It's a free country. We have, it says we have free speech. Why can't you say what you want? Pretty clear Democrats have their work cut out for them here, and not only in 2022. Terry Roundtree likes Ron DeSantis for governor and beyond. Once we started digesting our food and digesting the day, we realized that on that day-long trip, we spoke to dozens of people up and down the coast of Florida, all in precincts, by the way, that voted for President Biden in 2020. But to our surprise, we did not run into a supporter of Ron DeSantis's Democratic opponent. That would be Charlie Crist. Yeah, it was really that tough. It well, let me ask you, in inflation, you saw that's the biggest, that's the number one issue people are dissatisfied with this economy what's the first bill you guys can pass that you think can impact inflation i think the thing we have to work on is we got it we it's on inflation it's all tied to reckless government spending we've got to get our, we've got to get our budget in control we've got to figure out how we're going to balance our budget um so that uh, that's the first thing we have to do we have to get I mean, it doesn't really sound like, i don't mean it, I, I did as I governor mean, i balanced the budget eight years we got to keep doing it yeah, all the experts say legal immigration is the number one thing we need to deal with in Congress in order to deal with inflation. Everything else is on the Fed, but that's the number one issue. Are you guys going to deal with that? Yeah. Well, I hope we deal with first securing the border, figuring out how we have legal immigration where people who want to live our dream can come in here. But I think let's go back. We have got to figure out how to spend our money better. We've got to we've got to balance. We've got to figure out how do we get to a balanced budget and preserve the programs we care about. That's what we have to do. If we don't, we'll never get inflation under control. They're going to crucify that man. They're going to crucify him. Something fierce. They are so scared of him. Um, camp. They broke all the barriers. And once again, if you're winning more Latino and blacks in multiple states why isn't that translating in philadelphia where featherneck won why is that not translating across country it is unbelievable that this worked that this th this fucking right here worked this worked they election denied, they scared the shit out of people, and it fucking worked. I'm just shocked. This montage of mega worked. Uh, MAGA uh, agenda. It's a MAGA party now. A MAGA party. This is the MAGA crowd. MAGA crowd. The MAGA uh, congressional Republicans. MAGA 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 Republicans. Well, that's ultra MAGA. The ultra MAGA wing. The MAGA king. The ultra MAGA agenda. It's a MAGA agenda, all right. Ultra MAGA agenda. Ultra MAGA, the Ultra MAGA way. Ultra MAGA, Ultra MAGA. Mega MAGA trickle down politics. Mega MAGA trickle down. Mega MAGA trickle down. The MAGA agenda. But this is the MAGA gang. This is the MAGA crowd. What is 
it say about a party that abortion and fear gets them to vote? I mean, I have one large block to play today, and it was the final push. And I want you to listen to this shit. This is what people voted for as they demonized her and they got suspicious boxes. Chiron, extreme gerrymandering, threatens Wisconsin. All this stuff was all during the day. They were scaring them. Rob Reiner went on TV and literally said they're going to kill people to win. That was yesterday. They, they've taken off the net. You can't get it. You, you can't get a hold of it. It's not online. It, it's gone. It went bye-bye. But they scared people so bad with, you know, headlines like this, spiral of violence. When most of us went to bed going, if the Republicans win, there's going to be violence. New York Times front page, Wisconsin GOP on verge of total veto-proof power. Looks like Johnson's going to win, but it's really close. Yesterday, not in the media anywhere. Ejected for pre-selecting straight dim ticket on voting machines calling ours racist. Those are the people that were counting the votes yesterday. Everywhere. They were setting up for incredible failure because they didn't know the jig was up. But the jig was up. So you had Musk laid off, so disinformation is going to be there. Twitter gutted election. Oh, my God, they're going to steal it. Black people don't like Stacey Abrams who lost by double digits. And then there's shit like this. Here's the election people from Arizona. We've got about 20% of the locations out there where there's an issue with the tabulator where some of the ballots that after people have voted them, they try and run them through the tabulator and they're not going through. But the good thing is, is we do, first of all, we're trying to fix this problem as quickly as possible. And we also have a redundancy in place. If you can't put the ballot in the tabulator, then you can simply place it here in where you see the number three. And this is a secure box where those ballots will be kept for later this evening, where we'll bring them in here to central count to tabulate them. So this would function much like early voting functions in that we would get your ballot back. Once we've signature verified it, we would send it to our central tabulators. Ballots that are in here will already be in effect signature verified, so we won't need to confirm identity, but we will central tabulate them. This is actually what the majority of Arizona counties do on election day all the time. Now understand, this wasn't an accident. This was by design. This was yesterday. This was all over the place. But this was by design. When you're forcing mail-in ballots and you're canvassing to get the ballots and you're ballot harvesting prior to, that's how Fetterman won, prior to any debates or anything, do you think it was by accident they didn't have paper? Do you think it's by accident? machine? Come on. Republicans were voting that day. And for Democrats to win, you got to suppress the turnout. So there was all sorts of shit across the country where machines broke, didn't tabulate, weren't counting. And if it was a Republican, 
winning, it would be a big deal. But the Democrats pulled ahead. It was okay. And this is the second time Arizona's had this happen. Second time. A candidate, Maricopa election official Stephen Richter has issued a public apology for election issues today. Prior, promises all legal votes will be counted. Today there will be a lot of noise from Republicans about minor issues of polling places. I urge you to ignore it. I urge the media to ignore it. We have an expert-run election system in Maricopa County. We need everyone to stop sowing seeds of doubt about our democracy. Expertly run. They're at 64% of the count. But that the Republicans did win seats with our media jerk-off today, it is astounding because this was all through the day yesterday. My politics, the media jerk-off of the week. James, another headline making news at this hour. Uh, a Russian businessman with ties to Putin is now admitting to trying to meddle in U.S. elections, both in the past and trying to interfere in the current midterms as well. Yeah, that's right, David. Yevgeny Prigozhin has denied those allegations for years. But now on the eve of these midterms, he has said we have interfered, we are interfering, and we will interfere carefully, precisely, surgically, as we know how to do. It's a worrying thing to hear, David. President Biden has been briefed by law enforcement officials on potential threats to the midterm elections. CBS's Jeff Pegues tells us that election workers have been a prime target. Good evening, Jeff. So what are federal authorities doing? Well, tonight the FBI, Nori, is activating its command centers across the country with the potential for violence hanging over these midterm elections. A recent DHS alert warned that domestic violent extremists across the ideological spectrum pose a heightened threat. Over the weekend, the campaign headquarters of Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake was evacuated after the discovery of an envelope filled with white powder. And while no one was hurt, the scare came as details of threats to Arizona election workers were published in a judge ordered mass men in tactical gear to stay away from ballot boxes. Nora. So that's potential domestic threats. What about foreign interference? Well, there is concern about that as well. U.S. cyber officials say China has been active spreading disinformation in a way it hasn't seen before, seeking to... You're going to have a Democrat in the governor's mansion again and in Maryland, uh, in Massachusetts, excuse me, in Massachusetts in Maryland. Yeah. Maryland is... Because we're local, we see the signs everywhere. Uh, talk about Westmore and the importance of it. Well, look, there's a lot of history that is go that could be made tonight. I think these are two big ones, but especially for Democrats in Massachusetts, the first uh, openly gay governor in that state, but the first lesbian in the entire country. There could be actually a second tonight if Tina Kotek wins in the state of Oregon. Uh, but that's a significant moment for the state of Massachusetts, that governor's mansion returning to Democrats. But in Maryland... Uh, in Westmore, I think what you're seeing there is someone who Democrats agree is perhaps the future of the party. Enormously impressive candidate. I agree with you. He's going to have a national profile. What's so interesting, these are two deep blue states, Maryland and Massachusetts. And for the last eight years, both of them have been governed by moderate, moderate Republicans, Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker, both very popular. But both Healy and uh, 
and more were advantaged by the fact that they had hard right candidates, candidates who were strongly against abortion, strongly for Trump. And the resume that Westmore has is just stellar. It's, he was a veteran from Afghanistan in the 82nd Airborne. But I want to go back to uh, Maura Healy and Massachusetts because I, I, I'm sorry, when you think about it, the, the history-making moment of her being the first openly lesbian, yeah. okay. But the first woman, there's never been a female governor yeah, in Massachusetts? I mean, I, it is amazing. And we haven't had an election in whatever sort of post-COVID America. So the same day turnout, you know, I don't know what we look at. Do we look back to, do we look back to 18? We're right. sort of outpacing 18, at least in early voting. Um, what, what are your questions about what's going to happen tomorrow? Well, I'm, I'm really struck by how much we don't know that we don't know. Right. Um, and that's that's certainly <laughs> one of the questions. We don't know what is the difference between the ground games of the parties um, this year as opposed to uh, two years and, and four years ago. Um, what what are the polls missing? What are they picking up? Um, you know, what what is this campaign of fear and grievance um, that, that you were talking about? And I was really struck by your conversation, because I think people do need to strap in that this is not just going to be a one-day affair, that the, that the overtime is going to be extraordinary, because we've spent the last two years with Republicans ginning up and creating this machinery for election denial. And much of the Republican base has now been, um, you know, has marinated in this for the last uh, two years, and now expects the kinds of challenges that used to be uh, one-offs in the past. And I will, I will tell you, I live in Wisconsin, and in the past I have voted absentee or I have voted early. I didn't do that this year because I am watching the legal challenges. I do not want my vote to be disqualified or suppressed because I leave off a date or a digit on my address. And I do think that if the election is closer, there is going to be a major effort here in Wisconsin to disenfranchise my fellow citizens. And I don't want to lose that. And I wonder how many other voters are feeling the same way, because I think that uh, right now, when you think about how deeply, you know, how deeply immersed the Republican you know, establishment has now been in election denialism, does anyone think that they will not apply this to close elections in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona and Wisconsin? Democrats are talking about the economy and we're really talking about the economy. We passed the CHIPS Act, which is about competition with China. Right. So, yep. so we have actually done stuff. And the Inflation Reduction Act is going to attack inflation. And, of course, this is a global problem. Inflation is higher in Europe. So this isn't Biden's inflation. This is a worldwide inflation. Well, we're going to continue this conversation. I will say, by the way, the money coming out of Washington, you got a fair point. It's a big part of it. But that money also started trillions under Trump during the pandemic and then under Biden. So in, in that case... They would be blamed to go to both parties, but we'll take a we'll take a pause. I know you both are going to be back um, throughout the 2016 campaign. Donald Trump would use lock her up as a call and response to his audience about you. Michael Flynn would repeat it. it I can remember being in the in the convention um, in, in Cleveland and it was guttural. The amount of rage directed at you personally, it was very it felt very mm -hmm. personal. When you look at where we've come since then to where Donald Trump's ideology has now taken full root in the Republican Party, Carrie Lake laughed at Paul Pelosi, an 82-year-old man being beaten um, and concussed uh, by an intruder. And that is now just standard. Are you concerned that our democracy 
is not going to be able to hold past what you can only describe as fascism, violent politics and demand for power without elections. Well, I hope that uh, voters uh, really rally in this uh, last week before the midterms to understand fully what's at stake, to not get diverted. Like I said, you know, the Republicans have been talking about nothing but crime. Then when a crime is committed against Paul Pelosi, they could care less. These people do not really believe half of what they say. I served for eight years in the Senate. I know a lot of the people who are still there, and I don't recognize them, and I do know they know better than what they're talking about, but they think that they need to be part of this, you know, right-wing move that uh, is uh, unfortunately taken over the Republican Party. So we have a week for people to focus. If you have a candidate in your state who laughs about an 82-year-old man being hit with a hammer in his own home, there's something wrong with that person. Why would they want you to laugh with them about a crime? If you have someone running who voted in the House, as the vast majority of the Republicans did, uh, to you know turn back the clock on women's rights, to turn back the clock on Social Security and Medicare, then why on earth would you vote for that person? So let's clear away the smoke and the noise and try to focus on what's in your interest. You know, the Republicans have talked a lot about inflation. They've done nothing about it. It's President Biden who has. The war had come, however, because he was convinced that slavery had to die and democracy had to endure. And so in our own time, we have to do a, to use a popular term, we have to do an inventory. We have to decide what do we really believe? Do, are we so wedded to a partisan agenda in real time that we're, we just want our way right now? Or are just enough of us able to say, you know what, I may not agree with uh, the Democrats in this case on policy, but you know what, democracy is more important than a marginal tax rate. How confident can we be that democracy does survive? We can't. We can't be confident. We have to work really, really hard. Um, this is the gravest test of citizenship since the Civil War. And it's, this is, as President Biden might say, it's not hyperbole and it's not a joke. I thought for a long time, you and I talked about it a lot, that this was either 1932, 33, or 1968, where the institutions ultimately held. The difference is, Herbert Hoover didn't say FDR stole the election and put election deniers on the ballot in 1934. Hubert Humphrey didn't do that in 1968. President Trump, former President Trump, has done that. And to a large extent, he is both a mirror and a maker of this paranoia, which is what it is. It's, it's fact-free. And I think... One of, the, one of the groups that really has a moral reckoning to do are people who disagree with President Biden and Speaker Pelosi, whom we're thinking about at this hour, and the Democratic Party on policy, who say they don't appreciate Trump, 
But who knows? With the midterm elections a week away and threats against officials escalating, the DA called on everyone to tone down the rhetoric. Many Republicans have condemned the attack on Paul Pelosi, but some others have made light of it, including Carrie Lake, who is in a tight race for governor in Arizona. She brought the assault up when replying to a question about safety in schools. Listen. It is not impossible to protect our kids at school. They act like it is. Nancy Pelosi, well, she's got protection when she's in D.C. Apparently her house doesn't have a lot of protection. <laughs> but It's a laughter from the crowd that also really gets you. We've got Mike Pence, uh, we've got Ben Sass, other Republicans condemning the attack. Uh, she's taking a different route. What do those comments say about our current political climate? She is taking a different route. Think back to 2010, that year of a Republican wave, the Tea Party movement. Republicans that year ran on a fire Pelosi campaign. She was then a target politically of scorn and ridicule. Her Republican critics cast her as a San Francisco elitist. And really, for more than a decade, decade now, that approach to Pelosi has continued. And even at this traumatic moment for her and her family, the laughter at that event is not that surprising. And the fact that it's not that surprising is revealing of our deeply partisan, deeply divided political moment. And new details are coming to light this morning on his social media posts focused on far-right extremism, leading to a string of new online conspiracy theories. Online conspiracy theories have surfaced on the right about the attack. Some Put that phone down, girl. God bless you. It's my son. <laughs> Who, by the way, wanted to make sure that his absentee ballot was, was uh, that I did that. And I had trouble actually voting for him absentee ballot today. And that made me very concerned. It was the first but time. Uh, I was told to put it in an orange bag on the floor. And the orange bag mm. looked to me like a Target bag or something. And I said, isn't there a formal election box that says absentee ballots or something like that? And then she said, let me check, and then found it. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that concerned me. Aye, well, aye, it, aye. it should concern so you. A lot of the things sure that, that we've heard all year about how people are being blocked. But the beautiful thing is it doesn't seem to be stopping. Here in the United States, we're a little over a week away from our own midterm elections. And if you believe the recent headlines, you would think that MAGA fascism is ascendant. If you get past those headlines and dig a little deeper, you uncover an insidious and seemingly intentional campaign by Republican-backed polling firms to flood the zone and tip the balance of polling averages in favor of their candidates to create a narrative that Republicans are surging and that a red wave is imminent and inevitable. Our friend and Democratic pollster Simon Rosenberg has been sounding the alarm for weeks about this wave of polling, noting that if the roughly 40 of the roughly 40 polls taken in key battleground states, more than half, half are from Republican firms or groups. Over the weekend, the New York Times released four new polls in key battleground states, which showed Democrats either in the lead or tied with their opponent. So why are their polls telling a different story? According to Nate Cohn of the New York Times, most of the polling over the last few weeks is coming from partisan outfits, usually Republican or auto-dial firms. These polls are cheap enough to flood the zone. And it shouldn't come as a total surprise, given that one of those polling aggregators, Real Clear Politics, has become more openly pro-Trump. Back in 2020, the New York Times noted that Real Clear Politics has taken a rightward, aggressively pro-Trump turn. It also pointed out that their polling averages seemed skewed 
I'm concerned about two things. That very much so, as David enunciated, who I have to just say out loud, David and Jen and I were on opposite sides, never hated each other, had great respect for each other, and now we're all on the same side, which I hope most Americans are. I'm concerned about that. They've set up this narrative, so if they lose, they're going to say, all the polls showed us winning overwhelmingly. How did we lose? It must have been fixed. That's one. Right. And two, I'm continually uh, concerned, not by you, but by some media coverage that treats this all as some game that has these forecasts like here's the odds of this and Republicans could win here and Democrats could win there. It's like a weather guy covering a hurricane and saying, oh, by the way, a hurricane's going to hit in three days. Good night. And not telling you what damage it's going to do, what you can do to prevent it. And the gamification of politics in this moment, not only gaming it through polls, which the right has done, but the media make treating this as some sort of game where it doesn't really matter if A or B wins. Oh, we'll go on about our lives. I hope what the president said tonight is that there is a serious chance that if this doesn't go well, we don't have democracy anymore. And the night, 15 minutes from now, the World Series is going to be on. Oh, by the way, go Phillies. And, and a historian 50 years from now, if historians are allowed to write in this country, and if there are still free publishing houses and a free press, which, which I'm not certain of, but if that is true, a historian will say what was at stake tonight and this week was the fact whether we will be a democracy in the future, whether our children will be arrested and conceivably killed. We're on the edge of a brutal authoritarian system, and it could be a week away. You really think it's a week away, possibly? Possibly, because, you know, what are the safeguards that protect our democracy? Being able to have elections where you vote someone out who misbehaves. Instead, what we see, you know, you were, for instance, very rightly mentioning that uh, candidate for governor of Wisconsin saying, elect me governor, you'll never have a, 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 Republicans will always be elected henceforth in our state. Well, you know, Hitler and Mussolini didn't even bother to say that, yet 1934, uh, Mussolini had an election. How did it go? Well, Mussolini's party got 99% of the vote. 1936, Hitler's uh, party entered an election, which he called free and fair, which was a corrupt fraud. Hitler's party won with nine. It's hugely corrosive. I mean, it, this system only works if we continue to have faith in our institutions. And the basic premise is that we settle our differences at the ballot box and not at the barrel of a gun. But some are already laying the, the groundwork, though, Margaret, if it doesn't go their way. We are. And that's why I think we and our jobs, too, need to be so clear that it is a, not a flaw. It is design of the system. This is going to take time. Yeah. We're not going to have uh, absolutely clear views on some of these very closely uh, fought states. And in some places, we might have run-of-the-mill stuff like mm -hmm. recounts and re-examination of ballots. That is entirely different than completely sowing uh, doubt in a way that makes people say, you know, it's not even worth me voting. Yeah, because if you say I'm staying home, you leave that space to be filled by the loudest most extreme voices mm. and we have seen that highlighted that direct line and i know yeah. jeff knows this between domestic violent extremists and those who are denying the results of the last election yeah that's spot on is linking that well said and speaking of that system jeff when it comes to officials what are they most worried about when it comes to election security uh violence you know and it's so odd to be saying that in this democracy we've all covered enough elections but this one is different yeah and it's it's not a presidential election but it's a midterm 
midterm election with the prospect of potential violence hanging out there. And so mm -hmm. you have law enforcement are on pins and needles. They say they're ready. They're monitoring social media. They're looking out for potential domestic violent extremists, the kind of people who sort of look for an excuse. They won with this. And it's sad. January 6th, ignore everything they did. Just nonstop. Biden advisor, misinformation and the reason Stacey Abrams is losing by 12 points. I'm just going to leave this up the rest of the time because that's that's what it's about. This worked. I'm in shock that it worked. I'm I'm just blown away. I didn't get these sound bites or uh, pictures, but this is what was on Reuters or on Twitter yesterday. Ahead of U.S. midterms, posts online have said vote count continuing after Election Day are signs of fraud. This is misleading. No, it, no, it is. You're accepting them after. You're going to keep counting for three days. You're saying in Arizona and certain districts, we're not going to be finished till Friday. Election misinformation is spreading on TikTok ahead of U.S. midterms, despite the company's policies and watchdogs concerned. Don't go to TikTok. Before any, we were winning until the fraud dumps claims... Helpful piece from Marsha Cohen on what to expect from states' voting reporting patterns this year. Republican and Democrat shift in some places, Democrat to Republican. They've been building this. I've been playing it. Point of fact, an Instagram post said two-thirds of eligible voters don't vote. That's not true. Daniel Dale. Biden's closing midterm pitch has included false and misleading claims. There was one I could find. I looked for it. There's no evidence to support claim that voting machines have been intentionally calibrated to switch votes in Texas. Thread, PolitiFact. We've been tracking Florida Governor Santos' policy promises, and he didn't back any of them up. Didn't work. He still won by double digits. AFP fact check. Misleading posts evoking painful memories of regimes which many families left behind come to the United States and quickly proliferate among a group that makes up about 40% of the electorate. Shut up. Don't talk about the illegal immigrants. Uh, Center for Countering Digital Hate. We joined 40 other world-leading civil societies organizing calling on Twitter to stop advertising because now we don't control it. Here's a narrative we've seen since last week. Don't trust the election outcome if counting isn't done by election night. That's simply not true. As often is the case with misinfo, sometimes totally legal and not unusual as usually stirs up fears of election fraud. Well, why don't we finish it? Why do some states like Florida have a result by fucking 8 o'clock? It goes back to what I've been saying at nauseum on this podcast. You want people to stop talking about it? Maybe you should stop fucking around with the votes. Somewhere in there, there were some facts. So here's a few surprising sound bites I found yesterday. I mean, I, I think Mark is right. Speaking as a Democrat. Um, I'm, a, I'm a loyal Democrat, but I am not happy. I just think that we are, you know, we did not listen to voters in this election, and I think we're going to have a bad night. And, you know, this conversation's not going to have much impact on Tuesday, but I hope it has an impact going forward. Because when voters tell you over and over and over again that they care mostly about the economy, listen to them. Stop talking about democracy being at stake. Democracy is at stake because people are fighting so much about what elections mean. I mean, voters have told us 
what they wanted to hear. And I don't think Democrats have really delivered right, but this I, cycle. I, I think that's actually very true about the national messaging that's going on. But you actually have some good candidates who are following your advice. You have people like Mark Kelly, who was running a great race. You have people like Raphael Warnock, yeah, and who's running I, a great race. I would and Josh say, Shapiro. I would say in those places, Fetterman we, and Tim we Ryan. have our, you know, the unfortunate um, combination of strong gubernatorial candidates, you know, like Mark Kelly is a pop. I was just in Arizona and spent some time there, talked to a, a bunch of voters. Mark Kelly's popular, but Carrie Lake is more popular. And the combination of Carrie Lake's popularity and Joe Biden's unpopularity is going to hurt Mark Kelly. And so. Uh, I yeah. think we're gonna we're we're in trouble because of the top of the ticket. You, how do you speak to that, Mick? Could you about the us versus we? Because it is very concerning. It, it is. I think Ashley's right. It's not going to be a politician that that saves us, for lack of a better word. One politician didn't get us into this problem. One politician is not going to get us out. People ask me, how do you fix Washington? I'm like, Washington doesn't really lead. Washington reflects the nation. The reason Washington is so divided is that the country is. How do you fix that? It's a harder question. But don't look to Washington to fix this, look to us to fix it. But when it comes to the election deniers, though, most that primarily is the Republican Party. And that, I think, has led to many problems. No, that's that's not true. Look, January 6th is, is, is what it is. It was awful. It's terrible. That's that's not, I'm not here to defend that. But right. Democrats have denied election results just as much as Republicans if you take January 6th out of the equation. I, that's, yeah. that's just factually not yeah. true. I mean, yeah. there are hundreds of Republican candidates on the ballot tonight yes. who have denied the outcome of the last election. Stacey There's nothing Abrams, like that on Stacey the Democratic Abrams side. Stacey Abrams still has to admit she lost last time she ran in, in Georgia. Look, again, this is the debate, right? Right, right. Why, why can't we all agree that everybody's a little bit at risk and a little bit at fault and we try and fix it as opposed to everybody saying, well, it's got to be a Republican fault and until they change, the country's not going yeah. to fix. Nancy, I want to get to you in a bit, but Mick, I want to touch on something you said. You said politicians, they can't save us, yeah. but they sure can divide us. Um, and. and we hope that politicians reflect this country, but yeah. it seems like instead of a reflection, it's an injection of divisiveness. So wh why don't you believe that politicians are at the, the crux of why we are so divided, why it is us versus them during this time of year? Because during all times of year, to be honest with you. Right. Politicians derive. No more drilling. There is no more drilling. I haven't formed any new New drilling. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. Ends. Would there be any place for fossil fuels, including coal and fracking, in a Biden administration? No, it would be, we, would, we would work it out. We would make sure it's eliminated. We're going to be shutting these plants down all across America. No one's going to build a coal-fired plant again, and we're going to get rid of the ones we have now. I guarantee you. We're going to end fossil fuel. What about, say, stopping fracking and stopping yeah. new pipeline infrastructure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 exactly. and There's no question I'm in favor of banning fracking. No more, no new fracking. We are going to get rid of fossil fuels. Have a transition from the oil industry, yes. So I'm going to move on. Though that uh, pro-life activists are being persecuted and... Uh, in the meantime, like pro-life pregnancy centers are being attacked. It's and not. Those... It's. It is just. It. That is just not something that uh, that I'm going to comment from here about what the former president said. Uh, it is. Uh, you know, uh, just not going to get. Did it change anything? I don't know. I don't know what it is because we're stuck on limbo for a lot of districts. We don't even know. It looks like the House is going to be a Republican, and it looks like the Senate's got a bunch of fucking runoffs again. Which, why is the state allowing people to run off? 
Why are you letting independents in there when they only get 1%? The thing that astounds me are the myriad of Biden sound bites that I'm going to play followed up with the media gloating about his midterm success. Anybody can go down 300 to 3,000 feet in the mine, sure and hell can learn how to program as well. Give me a break. Anybody who can throw coal into a furnace can learn how to program, for God's sake. In addition, we're making the biggest investment ever to deal with the climate crisis. I know you all know there's no climate problem. I know you know that. That's why I spent a lot of time in Arizona, New Mexico, California, all through, flew up and down the state with your governor and those wildfires. I know they just happened. No more drilling. There is no more drilling. I haven't formed any new, new drilling. No, I... That was before I was president. We're trying to work on that, get that done. Thank you. So the lesson is, Tim don't Ryan. bet no. against Joe Biden. Don't bet against yeah. Biden. Politically, yeah. the guy always finds a way, it seems. Yeah. And that's what the White House is preparing privately. <laughs> Maybe he'll say it publicly at some point. Yeah, it'll you know, be interesting to he see what he has doing. to say. Of course, we're expecting to hear from him at some point today. But let the jokes begin about the red wave. I've heard it called, you know, the red sprinkler. I've heard <laughs> it called the red splash, the red puddle. Donnie, you were talking up a good game yesterday. You turned out to be more right than wrong. Well, one of the reasons why I decided after I talked to you, George, to go get a red jacket is because <laughs> I saw the only red wave possible for Chris today was what I was wearing. It was a trickle. <laughs> it was a trickle. No question. And look, uh, Democrats defy that expectations, Democrats defied historical norms. You've got to go back to Donald Trump. It, it is the one. I keep going back. What changed in the last 10 days? Two things changed in the last 10 days. There's the attack on Paul Pelosi. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that was an insignificant moment for a lot of voters. We actually saw a tone change with voters in our poll um, post the attack where voters in their message, they said, what message would, would you send with your vote? And they said, hey, end, end the and the partisanship, try to turn things down. Even Republicans were saying that. And previous to the Pelosi attack, we weren't, it was only a one-sided conversation. And then Donald Trump in the last... I asked, why can he get away with no more drilling? Why can Fetterman say he's not for fracking, then he's for fracking, then he's not for fracking? How is this okay? And for this is America, this is your future, boys and girls. A media that doesn't play fair. You knew everything about the Koch brothers. Here's a 60 Minutes glossing over a Soros group that's dark money and what they're going to come after if they hold the Senate and the House doesn't flip somehow because they really did a good job manufacturing votes. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. It's time for the last soundbite. Like the media say when they are pushing fake liberal agenda stories. This is America. 
With midterm elections in just two days, America is in a very angry moment. Republicans attack Democrats, and Democrats return fire. Social media is a showcase of our anger. An analysis by the New York Times this fall found that online use of the phrase civil war has exploded. Now, leading voices in academia and tech are saying that rather than simply reflecting the polarization in society, platforms like Facebook and Twitter are helping to create it. 60 Minutes first met Tristan Harris in 2017. The co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology argued that social media platforms were addicting us to maximize profit. Now, he's warning, they are generating billions by making us angry. The more moral outrageous language you use, the more inflammatory language, contemptuous language, the more indignation you use, the more it will get shared. So we are being rewarded for being division entrepreneurs. <laughs> the better you are at innovating a new way to be divisive, we will pay you in more likes, followers, and retweets. In so his again, 2020 documentary, like The Social Dilemma, Tristan Harris made the case that social media platforms have hijacked our attention. Now, he cites a new study of Twitter showing that attacking political opponents is almost guaranteed to draw attention. Each individual term referring to your political outgroup increased the odds of that post being retweeted or reshared by 67 percent. Your outgroup being outgroup your, your being opponents, people your on opponents, the, other side. the other side. Yeah, exactly. These platforms, are they not just reflecting who we are and what we think and the divisions that are already there? They're supercharging a hundred or a thousand times to one the worst parts of ourselves. Here's an example from the day the Department of Justice released a photo showing classified documents in former President Donald Trump's Florida home. A tweet highlighting a straight news story on the subject received about 2,000 likes. But a tweet from a Republican congresswoman calling Trump's opponents dumbasses was liked 10 times as much. And a tweet from the left labeling Donald Trump a traitor was liked 20 times more. The straight news story, you know, got retweeted a couple of times. Right. The angry stories exponentially more to exactly exactly and harris says anger skews the political landscape why is it that the world knows more about marjorie taylor green than they know about all the other hundreds of congressional candidates it's because the enraging inflammatory stuff goes the most Chris viral Dan harris says the intimidation and anger cut across political lines i think the deepest like perverse thing about these platforms is that they have captured the meaning of social participation in society, that they've colonized and privatized, that social participation means I'm on TikTok, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. And competition is fierce among those platforms for our attention and for the advertising dollars that attention generates. Facebook isn't saying, let me make design decisions that are gonna strengthen democracy. They're saying, how do I evolve the product in a direction that will get more engagement from people? Because if I don't do that, I'm just going to lose to the companies that do. Companies like TikTok. Companies like TikTok. And TikTok has become like one of the most popular apps around the entire world. TikTok has done that by serving up an addictive mix of short videos. Some are silly, 
others overtly political. It's owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance, and Harris says the version that's served to Chinese consumers, called Douyin, is very different from the one available in the West. In their version of TikTok, if you're under 14 years old, they show you science experiments you can do at home, museum exhibits, patriotism videos, and educational videos. And they also limit it to only 40 minutes per day. Now, they don't ship that version of TikTok to the rest of the world. So it's almost like they recognize that technology is influencing kids' development, and they make their domestic version a spinach version of TikTok, while they ship the opium version to the rest of the world. The version served to the West has kids hooked for hours at a time. The impact, Harris says, is predictable. There's a survey of preteens in the U.S. and China asking what is the most aspirational career that you want to have. In the U.S., the number one was influencer. Social media influencer. And in China, the number one was astronaut. Again, you allow those two societies to play out for a few generations, I can tell you what your world is going to look like. TikTok tells us it gives American users tools to limit screen time, but those tools are entirely voluntary. And national security concerns have triggered new calls this past week for TikTok to be banned in the U.S. Twitter points out that it asks users to think twice before sharing potentially harmful posts. But within days of buying Twitter, Elon Musk tweeted a conspiracy theory about the attack on Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband. It was later deleted. And Facebook says it has cut the overall amount of political content that its 240 million American users see. Monica Bickert is its head of content policy. Most people on Facebook don't want to see political content. They are following what's happening in the lives of their family and friends and sharing the moments from their lives. And Bickert says Facebook does take steps to downplay the angriest posts. Can you find angry political content online? You can. Can you walk into uh, the average family's Thanksgiving dinner and hear people having an angry political conversation? You can. Tristan Harris says that all the social media platforms are making those conversations even more heated. What I think there's been a failure to recognize is the direct conflict between an engagement for profit business model and what's good for democracy. Another way you could say it is that the business model is to ruin Thanksgiving dinner. We are as divided as I can remember in my lifetime. Yeah. A lot of people will say, well, hold on a second. Partisanship and division, we've had that in many times throughout history. Always. Always. That's true. Also, has partisanship in television and radio pre-existed social media? Yes. Have we ever wired up the most powerful artificial intelligence in the world, pointed at your brainstem, to show you the most enraging content on a daily basis, and the longer you scroll, the more you get? We have never done that before. Facebook's Monica Bickard insists it's just wrong to blame it for America's anger. Also, if we look at who's becoming more polarized in the United States, the greatest increase is among people over the age of 65. And they are the least likely to be using social media. Many people watching us will say, well, I don't use social media. Why should I care about this? But we're all downstream from social media affecting television, affecting radio, affecting journalism. More and more of journalism 
is about covering the outrage exchange of what happened on Twitter. Harris believes the best path to reform would be stricter government regulation of social media platforms, or at least a requirement that they be more transparent. Now, Facebook will tell you that they're all about transparency now. That's not convincing? They publish reports that they define what the metrics are, and it's like grading your own homework. Harris has launched an online course which aims to give people working in tech the tools to push for reform from within. Tristan Harris says real change may have to be forced in court. I think we have to do with social media what happened with Big Tobacco. What stopped Big Tobacco was that the attorneys general in different states That's right. actually went after them. The attorneys general in Big Tobacco had an enormous role to play in litigating that there was harms to people and their families. Is that what it's going to take with I think that's what's going to social take media social companies? Media. Yes. And we're seeing attorneys general move already one step in that direction. Attorneys general in at least eight states are coordinating a nationwide investigation of social media platforms. We now know that there's all these harms in social media products designed for engagement. We've done it before. We did it with seatbelts. We've done it with big tobacco. We've taken lead out of gasoline. We have made these changes once we recognize that certain products were toxic for us. We can do it again. All of it fueling criticism of some GOP campaign ads accused of leaning into violence. Our Second Amendment is not just about hunting. It's about our constitutional right to protect ourselves from intruders or an overly intrusive government. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to return this country back to its former glory. In the swamp, it's rhino season two. Unfortunately, this is not the end or the height of this type of uh, heated political rhetoric. I'm afraid this is the new norm, and it could be even taken even to more heights. And Hallie joins me now live. Hallie, good morning. As you say, the stoking of division and anger, nothing new. But social media right. and prominent leaders, many of them who you just mentioned, have accelerated us perhaps closer to political violence. But what are the hopes among people you speak to of turning this around? Listen, I don't, I don't, I think very few people like this, right? I think that is just the reality, uh, but it exists. It is here. Look at the mood of the electorate. Even right now, Willie, our latest polling shows that 80% of voters in both parties think the other side is going to destroy America. And our pollsters say many people are being driven to cast their ballots this year out of anger, right? Out of fear. That is the political reality here. You are seeing some people try to do things to turn things around. Look at Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who's long been a voice who would speak out against his party. He has launched a new group to try to combat some of this rhetoric and, and attitude that we're seeing. Same with Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who's moving forward on a new anti-Trump group. The question is, are those groups going to actually get any traction, Willie? We just don't know yet. Yeah, when you cast politics in apocalyptic turns, people behave. Folks, they're going to come for guns. They're going to do the John Lewis Voting Act, and we'll never win in the Senate or the presidency again. You might win the House, but they're going to grab it. I mean, they're so good at it now. Right now, I'm checking in. From this morning till now, 66% of the votes have been counted. 50.3 to 49.7. Carrie Lake, who was up by five points, isn't winning. Um, House live tracker. This morning, it was 200 GOP. I don't know where it's out now. As of this afternoon...
House and Senate to live Dems hold key governor. House, Senate, House, seat tracker. Okay, where are we at? Usually you can get this thing up pretty quick. And I can't get it because they're fucking... Fetterman, Republicans I know control the House as Democrats flip the Senate seat. Okay, so right now it's 48-48 in the Senate. 199 to 172. The Republicans had promised red wave, which would sweep through the United States midterm election, although the results are yet to be out on Wednesday night. Most analysts believe the Republican loud proclamations would not materialize. They actually didn't do it. You said it. But it hasn't changed. Nothing's been resolved. Warnock and Walker will once again go to a recount like it did last time. And the Senate, the House, everything I've heard, the, the, the GOP will get control. That's, that's all I've heard from even CNN. But it'll be narrow. They had a 208. They'll barely have the 218. And, you know, I think my tweet pretty much... Let me see if I can find the one I got to say. Three thoughts from the cheap seats. One, GOP had no message. Only Dems can, with the whole media help, run on, we are not them. That was their message. They didn't put out anything to make people want to vote for them. Number two, stop talking about waves. Media pushed it on purpose to suppress GOP voter turnout on game day. And three, Trump go away. Those are my three takes from the election. I truly believe because they know voters who are GOP don't trust ballot harvesting. After now a second election, I guess we're all going to have to ballot harvest, but I still don't trust it. Because now we're finding out in Arizona because people were so fucked up and they couldn't get in. They did paper ballots and dropped them in a box hoping they get counted. Because there were gigantic lines in Arizona and Pennsylvania. And Oz probably lost because people didn't want to wait. We have to figure out a way to get a control of all three chambers and change voting. You should not be able to vote for two months. Specifically, if you're not going to count it. You should not be able to ballot harvest. You should not be able to mail out the whole voter rolls and then go pick it up. You just shouldn't be able to do it. But it's happening. And unequivocally, every Trump person he picked lost. And I got to say, the most shocking thing is the left financed it and the media is now it's a stroke of genius. So let's just do some. Okay, let's play that game. Republicans back a bunch of fringe lefties. How's that going to play? Important swing districts 
tabulators break, voting machines break, don't have enough paper copies, and it was African Americans in line to vote. How would that go down, folks? But because they believe they sealed it with early voting, they're not, no, they're, the media's not upset about this shit. They're not even talking about it. It's like it didn't even happen. And if it flipped, it would be like end of days. That is 100% voter suppression. You're suppressing the vote. So to end on a somewhat positive, here's a Ben Shapiro soundbite that I was moved with. What's the strongest case for pro-life in your mind? I mean, the strongest case for pro-life is that from conception, a human life has been created. It is a human life with potential. That human life potential with potential now has an independent interest in its own existence. If I may just uh, ask a quick question. So conception is when a sperm fertilizes an egg? Yes. Okay, just to, to clarify yes. the biological beginning mm -hmm, of what conception mm -hmm, mm -hmm. means. I mean, that because that is the beginning of human life. Now, there are other standards that people have drawn, right? Some people will say implantation in the uterus. Uh, some people will suggest viability, some brain development or heart development. But the, the clear dividing line between a human life exists and a human life does not exist is the biological creation of an independent human life with its own DNA strands and et cetera, which happens at conception. Once you acknowledge that there is that independent human life with potential. And I keep calling it that because people sometimes say potential human life. It's not a potential human life. It's a human life that is not developed yet to the full extent that it will develop. Once you say that, and once you say that it has its own interest, now you have to, now the burden of proof is, is to explain why bodily autonomy ought to allow for the snuffing out of that human life if we believe that human life ought not to be killed for, for quote unquote, no good reason. You have to come up with a good reason. Right, the burden of proof is now shifted. Now, you will find people who will say, well, the good reason is that it's not sufficiently developed to outweigh the mental trauma or emotional trauma that a woman goes through if, for example, she was raped or the victim of, of incest. Okay, and that, that is a fairly emotionally resonant argument, but it's not necessarily dispositive. You can, you can make the argument that just because something horrific and horrible happened to a woman does not rob the human life of its interest in life. One of the big problems in trying to draw any line for the self-interest of life in the in the human life uh, is that it's very difficult to draw any other line that doesn't seem somewhat arbitrary. If you say that independent heartbeat, you know, well, you know, people have pacemakers. If you say brain function, people have various levels of brain function as adults. If you say viability, babies are not viable after they are born. If I left a newborn baby on a table and did not take care of it, it would be dead in two days. So, you know, once you start getting into sort of these lines, it starts to get very fuzzy very quickly. And so if you're looking for sort of a bright line moral rule, that would be the bright line moral rule. And that's, that's sort of the pro-life case. So since I'm short for time, we're going to close the show out right now and play the first 10 minutes of Ben Shapiro's. He breaks it down pretty damn good. And we're going to pause until Saturday. Uh, I'll come back Saturday, 12 November, year of our Lord, 2022. I thank you all for listening. Please share this with your family and friends. Disconnect from your devices. Go to foppodcast.com. But I'm pretty pissy right now, and I don't want to talk about it. I'm not a Republican once again, but I am so disappointed with America that they fell for this bullshit and voted in these people that are continually to destroy their lives, all because they bought the fear. As I've said over and over, we will never have free elections 
until we have a free media and we don't have a free media anymore it was atrocious yesterday everywhere you went they were backing vote stoppages broken machines and saying everything's okay which makes most of us start to think they were cheating because it's only the second time we've ever done it and it just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse and if it was the other way around you would not tolerate it you just wouldn't tolerate republicans doing this which once again points to you're doing something to ensure you win every time and if that's what our democracy is sadly most of us will quit voting and I think that's what they want us to do. But somehow, some way, we got to get better candidates, better people. We have to take this country back. If we don't, we're forever lost to these fucking lepers. It's just sad. So I'll talk to you Saturday. Thanks for listening. Well, an extraordinarily disappointing night for the Republicans last night. Before the election, I had laid out the possibility of three scenarios. One was the red trickle, one was the red tide, the third was the red wave or the red tsunami. The red trickle was going to be the Republicans win, say, 10 seats and up in the House, they gain the House, and they barely take the Senate, or they hold even in the Senate. And then you have the red tide, and that was going to be 20 plus seats for the Republicans, fairly strong showing on the evening, plus they take, say, a couple more seats in the Senate, end up with a 52-48 majority. And then there was the red wave, which would have been like 54 seats in the Senate and upwards of 230 seats in the House, like 235 or something. This was not only not a red wave, it was not a red tide, it was barely a red trickle. Barely, barely, barely a red trickle, which means heads should roll. When your football team is expected to go 16 and 0, it's one thing if your football team then proceeds to go 14 and 2 or 10 and 6. If your football team proceeds to go 8 and 8, People get fired. The entire coaching staff, the entire leadership team in the Republican Party needs to go, and it needs to go now. now. I spoke to the Republican House Caucus back in 2021, and I said to them, if somehow you fail to take the House, given the conditions that you have been given, every one of you ought to lose your jobs. Well, they're barely going to take the House, and I mean barely, barely, barely going to take the House. The current estimate suggests that Republicans are going to win somewhere between 8 and 15 seats in the House. They started off with 212. That means they will end up on the low end at 220, at a 435, which means that they would have a five-seat majority in the House after starting with just a 10-seat minority in the House. That is an extraordinarily crappy result. In the Senate, the Republicans look like they are going to be on the losing edge of this one. Basically, the entire Senate comes down right now to Georgia, where it looks like there will be a runoff between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Arizona, not all the votes are in because apparently all the votes in Arizona are counted by a single blind nun working in Mozambique. And so we have to take at least seven years to count all the votes in Arizona. And the same thing holds true in Nevada. If you have to ballpark the outcomes of those races right now, what you would figure is that Republicans, in order to gain control of the Senate, would need to take two out of those three. Republicans, I think, may still take Nevada. It looks as though they're going to lose Arizona. And that runoff with Herschel, we're going to get another Senate runoff in Georgia, this time featuring the extraordinarily flawed candidacy of Herschel Walker against Raphael Warnock in an off-year election where Brian Kemp is not on the ballot to drag Herschel Walker up ballot. These are crap results, guys. These are bad results. I'm not going to sugarcoat stuff. 
I'm not going to pretend that this is a, a wonderful evening for Republicans or even that it's a good evening for Republicans. It was a garbage evening for Republicans last night. And we'll get to all the reasons it was a garbage evening for Republicans in just one second. First, we need to actually go through the results. So Kevin McCarthy at 2 a.m. sort of wobbled out to take, I can't say a victory lap. It was more like a couple of victory steps because this was supposed to be a big coming out party for Kevin McCarthy. The guy who's going to be Speaker of the House, supposedly. And his leadership, shall we say that it was tepid? I don't know that you get to be Speaker of the House after you win 8 to 15 seats in a year in which the fundamentals not only favor you, but favor you dramatically. Let us recall the fundamentals going into this particular election cycle. The current president of the United States, Joe Biden, who is not alive, has a 43% approval rating. The Democrats in Congress are not popular. Their approval ratings are not good. We have a 40-year inflation spiral. We have historically high gas prices. We have failure when it comes to Afghanistan. We had polling suggesting that the Republicans were going to do well on the generic congressional ballot. And by the way, polling that is justified in the exit polls, as we'll talk about, about good Republican performances among Hispanics and blacks. And yet somehow, magically, the Republicans translated all of those systemic advantages, again, in an off-year election where there's one party in power, they translated all of that into an 8 to 15 seat pickup. That is unprecedentedly bad. It is the worst election for the out-of-party power, the out-of-power party, since the 2002 midterm elections, which came right after 9-11. And that, at least, you could say, well, George W. Bush had the coattail effect of 9-11. And Americans, for a brief instant in time, were unified around a patriotic fervor for the country and for the current president of the United States, George W. Bush, in 2002. Right now, nobody likes Joe Biden. If you look at the actual exit polls, what they showed is that a huge majority, like 75% of Americans, were negative about the economy. How are you the party out of power in all of the elected branches of the federal government and 75% of the people think the economy sucks and you win 8 to 15 seats? How is that even possible? So Kevin McCarthy went out there and tried to uh, turn a sow's ear into a silk purse. It didn't go amazing. Here, here's what he sounded like last night. Now tonight... We built upon those gains two years ago, and it is clear that we are going to take the house back. Now, let me tell you, you're out late, but when you wake up tomorrow, we will be in the majority and Nancy Pelosi will be in the minority. Okay, so there's some sort of airsats enthusiasm last night, but... The actual reports from the victory party there is that people were just confused and bewildered as to, uh, as to what exactly was happening. Because, again, this was supposed to be a big win for the Republicans, and it just wasn't. It just was not. As Politico reported, McCarthy actually delayed a victory speech to what was supposed to be a jubilant party of Republicans until 2 a.m. on Wednesday. I mean, I was asleep by, this time thing, by the time this thing happened. We were supposed to have a victory party like 10 p.m. This was supposed to be an early night. It was not only not an early night. It was a dramatic underperformance. The GOP leader kept his speech brief. He didn't have a firm call that his party had even won the House. Now, listen, does it make a difference that the Republicans took the House? Yes, it means that they can stymie the worst excesses of Joe Biden. And that's good for the country. As Elon Musk suggested, divided government is better at this point than unified government, for sure. With that said, is this a strong Republican party? Is this a Republican party that looks durable? Is this a Republican party that looks like it has any leadership class at all? Or does it look like there's a massive leadership vacuum at the top of the Republican Party, particularly in the House, but also when it comes to the National Party. According to Politico, the sleepy event was not the victory rage Republicans had envisioned. In downtown D.C. at the Westin, GOP staffers and lobbyists had flocked to different open bars scattered around downstairs ballrooms around 9 p.m., keenly awaiting election results to start rolling in from TVs to Fox News. 
However, in the hours leading up to McCarthy's appearance, there were a few cheers as the room watched as competitive races rolled in with mixed results. And that is correct. And the attitude over the course of the evening went from jubilant at the beginning of the evening to cautiously optimistic to cautiously pessimistic to shoot me now. That was the generalized attitude. Because again, a minor victory, and it is, it's a major victory in terms of the shift in governance to gain control of the House, obviously. But what was supposed to be a wave did not even come in as a tide. And as I say, barely came in as a trickle. There is no way to pretend that this was a good night for Republicans because it just wasn't. It was, it was such a bad night for Republicans that some of the more high-profile Republicans, for example, like Lauren Boebert. Lauren Boebert looks like she's going to lose her seat in Colorado. That is an R plus seven district. Democrats flipped Steve Chabot's district in Ohio. Democrats were not supposed to flip any districts last night. Republicans were supposed to flip all the districts last night. There were a few positive House results in Florida and New York. Lee Zeldin in New York, who we'll get to in a little bit, he lost his race to Kathy Hochul, but his strong performance did drag a lot of Republicans in the Hudson River Valley into Congress along with him, mitigating the possibility that Republicans would not gain the House. But a bunch of vulnerable Republicans in what was supposed to be a wave year for the Republicans lost their seats. That includes Myra Flores in South Texas, who was a star five seconds ago. Now she's out of Congress. She tweeted, the red wave did not happen. Republicans and independents stayed home. Do not complain about the results if you did not do your part. Now, here's the thing. I'm not sure the Republicans and independents stayed home. I think the Republicans actually showed up. I just think that some independents had some very serious questions about the Republican Party, and that will require some serious soul-searching in all of this. Again, right now, as we speak, the Republicans have not formally won the House. There are still races that have yet to be counted. They probably will win the House, but these are not good numbers for the Republicans. And Boebert was not, she was not supposed to lose that race in Colorado. And part of that is because the House Republicans did not convey a sense that they know what they are doing. There are going to be a few big messages we're going to talk about, about what happened last night. The first message is candidate quality matters. Being perceived as solid in your governance strategy matters. Republicans who had a solid record of governance, Republicans who were perceived as sober and serious, did quite well last night. And everybody else took it directly on the nose. That was certainly the story in the Senate. The story in the Senate is candidate quality, candidate quality, candidate quality. And what I mean by this is that if you are perceived as a crazy person, if you are perceived as wild and out of the box, even if you excite the base, you will lose. You must be perceived, if you wish to win, you must be perceived as a person serious enough, serious enough to hold the office, at least if you wish to be a Republican. If you're a Democrat, you can be as crazy as you want to be, because for whatever reason, you have systemic built-in advantages that make up for the fact that, for example, John Fetterman is not only a Bernie Sanders-style socialist, but also not fully functional. But if you're a Republican, the baseline assumption is going to be, by the electorate, that unless you are competent and sober, you don't deserve power. And so there was a lot of talk in the lead up to the election about, I, I engaged in some of this, about how the Joe Biden democracy's at stake message was not resonating with people. And in a direct way, it wasn't resonating with people, right? Republicans did take the House. So obviously, the notion that, that just that message alone was going to keep Republicans from power is wrong. However, what this meant is that Republicans got, got silly. They nominated a bunch of bad candidates in close races. And oddly enough, they nominated a bunch of good candidates in not close races. And so you ended up in the House with this weird dichotomy where in districts that Democrats won by 18, Republicans would make up 15 points of that ground with a really solid candidate and then lose. And then in districts where Democrats were up by three, Republicans would nominate somebody who was like a big fan of January 6th. And then that person would lose. 
And so they would nominate bad candidates in close races and good candidates in not close races, and they would lose both of those things. That was the, that was the pattern in the House. And then in the Senate, Republicans made the mistake of thinking that because the dynamics for the Democrats were going to be bad, they could nominate anyone. So if you look at the narrative of politics over the past few years, what you will see is that what Americans basically want is stability. They want stasis. That's all they want. And the parties keep taking the wrong message from all of this. In 2012, Democrats took the message that they had an unbeatable coalition that could be as radical as they wanted to be. And the reaction by the American people was, we'll elect Donald Trump to not give you that sort of power. Donald Trump won. And instead of taking the election, the Republican Party, as a sign that it was time to get back to some semblance of normalcy, instead they said, well, I mean, if we won, this means that we have magic on our side and we can nominate whoever we want to and we'll just continue to win victories. And then Donald Trump did not win in 2020. And now Republicans did not win in 2022. The underlying dynamics of American politics are the same. Gravity applies. Just because some out-of-the-box candidates are capable of defying gravity for a short period of time does not mean that they don't fly too close to the sun and the wings burn away. And that is what we are watching happen for virtually everybody in all parties. The American people are not up for crazy right now. They are sick of crazy. They are sick of volatile. They are... They are